Welcome, uh, extend a, a big warm liberty welcome to everybody if you're visiting for the first time, uh, if you've been here a few times before, if you are a regular here, uh, it's great to see everybody here and see a church so, so full. Um, the game at the moment is Luton-Manchester United, so no, no draw at all really, a bit of a rubbish game, so uh, you can see why the, the rafters are packed here today. Um, it's really good to see you all. Uh, my name's Andy, uh, I'm one of the gospel community leaders with uh, my wife uh, Beth. Um, just sat there and uh, I'm not the leader here so don't come asking me all the big questions at the end Neil is the, uh, the pastor here, the elder here um, and he's upstairs so uh, I'm sure he'll give you a warm welcome if you are new here I'll give you a warm welcome as well, as well so don't worry about that um, Today we're carrying on with our series in Mark you join us a couple of sermons in and we've been going through uh, we're going to spend quite a while in the book of Mark actually it's one of the Gospels um, written by one of the, uh, the followers of Jesus And uh, we've been going through a couple of chapters so far. Today, we're in Mark chapter two. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, please raise your hand. And I'm sure, there we go, we have two hands raised at the front. If somebody could grab these uh, young ladies a Bible so that they can follow along. We're in Mark chapter two, verse one to 12. And the big idea of today's sermon is that Jesus is the remedy to our biggest problem of sin. Jesus is the remedy to our biggest problem of sin. So far in Mark chapter one, we've looked at Jesus being a life-giving authority. In Mark chapter 1, a little bit further on, the kingdom is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 19 to 13, the God of all comfort. And Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, the king who comes to meet us. And this week, we're going to be looking at Mark's account of Jesus healing the paralytic, uh, the remedy to our biggest problem of all. Let me read Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 12, uh, and we will get straight into it. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, that's Jesus, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer just before we go through God's word. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, read your word, to hear your word, and to think about it just for this little time on this Sunday afternoon. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change us, uh, that you would move us today as we look at the Son, at your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, as we look at who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 
Um, I don't know what you see as your biggest problem in life. Um, what's your biggest hurdle? That one problem that you'd like to have removed. That one thing that if it got shifted, if it got moved on, if you woke up one morning and that problem had been miraculously dealt with, you'd, you'd feel like that weight of the world had been lifted from your shoulders, knowing that it had gone. It had gone. You'd be able to breathe clearly. Uh, not have that nagging feeling, that anxious feeling biting away at you through the day. What is it? Is it your GCSEs? Is it your job? Is it your silly husband going and buying tiramisu and imagining that it was, you know, the favourite dessert that she desperately wanted, even though she didn't communicate it with you? That happened last night, by the way. Is it your mortgage? Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it your health? There you go. In this passage, we see something quite startling, something quite confusing. But when we understand what Jesus is doing, we actually find that it's the real remedy to all of our problems, that Jesus seeks out the biggest root problem of our lives and he remedies it. So a bit of context just for the passage that we're in today. It's very early in Jesus's ministry. Uh, Jesus has been baptised. He's been tempted uh, he has called a number of his disciples. Not all of them have been called yet. Uh, and he has been teaching and already he's performed a number of wonders, a number of, of miracles. And his name is beginning to get around the local populace. He's starting to become this very famous fellow in this, this area that he is in. And Jesus finds himself lodging at home, it says in the passage. Now, the likelihood amongst many commentators uh, of the Bible is that this is the house of Peter, uh, one of his earliest disciples, um, and Jesus is living with Peter and his family. Now, as, as far as roommates go, Johnny, who's not here today, unfortunately, he was a very good housemate most of the time. Matty, you were a good housemate from time to time, um, but not quite on the son of God's level. You know, that's a pretty special thought, isn't it? That living with Jesus, spending time in the evening and chatting to him. Uh, not only as a lodger, but as a friend. I think even in this, we get a glimpse into what Jesus is like here. He didn't isolate himself from others. He ate with other people. He stayed up late and had long chats into the night with Peter's family. What an amazing thought that is, that Jesus was this lodger with Peter in this house. And we see an amazing example of what he was like as a human being. And then one day, this day that we see in this passage... Then one day, Jesus is found in Peter's home. And maybe people have followed Jesus and his disciples home from a day of ministry. Maybe one person has seen Jesus walk home with Peter and spread the word that the rabbi is back uh, at Peter's house and the whisper gets around the small town and people come knocking. Before you know it, you've got a huge crowd of people filling the house, spilling out of the door and into the street. And you've got people peering into all of the available windows People lurking outside, finding the best place to hear the words, at least, of Jesus. I mean, worry about Peter in his house. He's just thinking about the feng shui of the room and everything getting moved out the way. The chairs have been moved. The tables are being sat on. However, he's probably very used to this. And Jesus's hospitality is likely rubbing off on him as he will have spent all this time with the Messiah and learning about what it means to be hospitable. That's what happens when we spend time with Jesus. We learn from him. We we learn all of those amazing qualities from him. Peter is probably becoming more and more hospitable by the day. 
The closest I can compare this moment to was when I went to the Open on the Wirral a few months ago um, and watched some of the world's greatest golfers. Have we got any golf fans here? No golf fan. One golf fan. Fantastic. You'll understand. Um, but none of the other golfers caused us there quite like Rory McIlroy. Um, people were shouting his name from everywhere. Groups of grown men were running to get a closer look at him. Um, hordes of people gathered around him just trying to get a glimpse at him. So that's the closest I can explain this situation in Mark chapter 2. Jesus caused a stare wherever he went and ripples of excitement of people. Just, they just wanted to hear him, wanted to listen to him and wanted to get close to him. And Jesus is teaching this crowd inside Peter's house and he preaches the word to them. The word meaning the gospel of the good news of the Christian faith that many of us are followers of inside of Peter's house. And as Jesus is preaching, this is the main part of the story. There's, there's a rustle from what sounds like it's coming from the roof. It's so packed, maybe that could have been somebody knocking anything over. So the preaching continues and Peter maybe throws a withering look over to one side of the room, wondering what's going on, but carries on. Jesus carries on teaching, but all of a sudden we see some straw fall from the roof. We see a bit of clay fall down and hit one of the people sat next to Jesus on the head. Some unfortunates on the top of their head. And then several beams of light spring through the room. And then all of a sudden we've got some hands. They're now through the roof. They're scraping the clay away and the straw away. And at this point, Peter's in full meltdown mode. <laughs> all of his thoughts of hospitality have gone. And then we're left with a gaping hole in the roof. And we've got four faces full of apologies. But their faces are beaming with hope and faith for their friend. They lower the friend down on the bed and their friend is a paralytic. His paralysis is likely very severe. He's possibly a quadriplegic if he's lying on his bed. And he is totally reliant on his friends. Beautiful friends, aren't they? They're beautiful friends. The lengths that they will go to for their loved ones and they bring to the one man, they bring him to the one man that they believe can do anything for their friend. And then we see this beautiful verse, this beautiful, uh, this beautiful line in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith. So these friends were aggressive in the right way. Uh, they were persistent in their effort, efforts to get their friend to Jesus. They had such faith in him to heal him that they literally break in a ceiling and are probably willing to foot the bill for, um, for Peter afterwards just to, 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 to get their friend to have an audience with Jesus. They had such faith in Jesus. And the big question, I suppose, for many of us, just before we really dive into this passage, is how similar are we in regard, regards to our faith in Jesus in trying to bring our friends to him? How similar are we in our urgency to bring our loved ones, our friends, our family who don't know Jesus uh, to get them to him how urgent are we are we willing to metaphorically or even literally break in ceilings to open up opportunities for them to meet jesus see jesus is approachable in this passage and he doesn't rebuke or turn the friends away he actually marvels at their faith when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven you See, the first thing Jesus addresses is the man's sin. Slightly confusing, don't you think? The obvious problem to human beings' eyes is that the man is unable to move. He's laid up on a bed. But that's not where this human being looks first. See, Jesus 
being the God man. And what I mean by that is that he was 100% God and 100% man. The maths doesn't add up, but if we have faith in the transcendent God, then this is what we believe as Christians. He looks at this man in a different way and he's far more interested in dealing with a much more pressing issue, a greater problem and a barrier for this man than his legs. He's far more concerned with the man's spiritual state. Our God is far more concerned with our souls. It's something we'd all do well to imitate in our own lives. If God is more concerned with how our soul is doing, then we should always check in on our souls. There's a wonderful story in the uh, Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. Many of you will know it. Um, But if you don't know it, basically it's the story of how God chooses the next king of Israel after the first king, Saul. He chooses King David. Many of you might know from your IRS lessons, the star of David in Judaism, King David, second king. Um, In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of David or his stature, because I have rejected him. Um, For the Lord sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. See, Jesus, with this paralyzed man, he looks at the man's soul and he finds that, like all other human beings, there is a deep-rooted problem, and that problem is sin. So there's three things that I just want to share with us very briefly, and then we'll go into some application. And the first thing is this. Jesus goes to the root problem. Jesus goes to the root problem. What is the root problem? The Bible calls it, that horrible three-letter word, uh, sin. He calls it sin. Um, the Hebrew word is uh, katar. I thought I'd do a little bit of uh, Hebrew over to English. The Hebrew word is katar, K-H-A-T-A. Um, it was, would have been very well known to the people around um, Jesus in this room. The scribes and the Pharisees would have religiously been saying this word to them, sin, katar, katar. Qatar, it translates very simply to fail or to miss the goal, which is something that Matty does very often on a Saturday morning. Um, in Judges 20, 16, he will tell you how many goals he scored this morning. He tallies them up on his wall. Um, in Judges 20, 16, we learned that um, in the Old Testament times, uh, they had slingshot experts, which is a military thing. They had sling, not one of those ones, which you do like that, a big thing that they did like that. And... Um, experts who successfully they nailed the bullseye they don't qatar they don't miss the goal uh, it simply means to not fail or miss the target and similarly in proverbs 19 2 that people who act quite hastily whilst they're traveling um, are likely to qatar to miss their intended destination that's why Beth's never in control of the satnav because obviously we, we'd qatar we'd missed the, the direction the goal um, so if sin is missing a goal What is the goal? See, when God creates humanity in his divine image, he sets the goal. In Genesis 1, 26, it captures an interesting statement from God. God says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. The our referring to that God is not single. He is uh, is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is inseparable, but distinct, forever together in an unbreakable love. And to be created in the image of God like this suggests that humanity's most essential nature is divine love. We've been made to love. Living with love for God and for one another and all creation is our primary human goal. Choosing to not love invites in corruption into our hearts, 
into the goodness of creation. So it is Qatar, it's sin. And we see this through the development of the entire Bible from Genesis chapter three, the first human being misses the goal of loving God when they ignore his instruction and they redefine good and bad on their own terms. Their choice fractures their relationship with God and each other leading ultimately to their death. In Genesis chapter four, we see Qatar again. We see Cain with his brother. He's faced with the decision to be truly human and love his brother or to corrupt himself and others by murdering his brother Abel. And God sends a warning to Cain. He says, if you do not choose what is good, Qatar is crouching at the door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. That's in Genesis chapter four, seven. See here, the author describes sin as something outside of Cain, like a crouching predator waiting to attack and destroy life. See, the Bible makes it clear that we're all infected with this. And we all, every single one of us, me and you, all of us, we all miss God's standard and we all miss the goal of his holiness. And it brings separation from God. See, Jesus identifies this as the man's biggest problem, not his legs, not his paralysis. His biggest problem is his soul condition. It's my problem and it's your problem. And my first question to you today is this. Have you acknowledged that you have a sin problem? Have you acknowledged that you have missed God's standard? And that brings separation between you and God. If you have acknowledged it, that's that's a start, I suppose. And we'll find out as we go through this passage what the next step is. See, I wanted to touch on this as well. I think this is really important because it shows us a lot about the character of Jesus. Jesus is approachable and he doesn't turn the man away. See, on on the shorter point, before we get to the climax of the passage, Jesus is quite obviously approachable and he's full of love for this man who he's never met before. This man's Qatar is falling short, is missing God's standards. Jesus's own standard, it it doesn't irk Jesus in any way when he looks at this man. And I think what's beautiful here is that Jesus has the ability to see the soul of this man. And I don't know what sins that he personally had to contend with. I can take a guess. Maybe he was bitter from his situation. Maybe he was angry. He was jealous. Covetousness would have sprung up in his heart. Maybe that's the sins that he contended with, which all sprang up from what he would have perceived to be his biggest problem. And Jesus isn't disgusted by him. He isn't irked by the presence of this man, no matter how holy Jesus, the son of God is. Yes, he sees the problem there. He doesn't gloss over the problem. He calls it for what it is. He calls it sin. But Jesus doesn't tell his friends to get him out of that room in that instant. He doesn't tell him to get him out of his holy presence. Being the God man, he had every right to do so. He doesn't throw the ropes of the bed back up at the friends and tell tell them to lift their friend out. Jesus goes to the man and most likely kneels next to him in a comforting way if we know anything about what Jesus is like in the, in the past of the, uh, bits of the gospel that we've read. And he prepares to fix the problem, he prepares to fix that barrier and that problem of sin, which we will see in our next point. And so my second point to you is this. My second question to you is this. Have you approached Jesus with your sin problem? Have you approached him? Have you acknowledged it? And have you gone to him with this issue? And then finally, before an application, 
Have you, sorry, Jesus fixes the problem. Jesus fixes the problem. You see, the scribes, the religious leaders, they're questioning Jesus' authority here about whether he can cleanse this man of sin. Uh, According to them, they think he's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God, which they didn't believe him to be. They were waiting for somebody else that fulfilled the characteristics of the Messiah. Jesus straight away nullifies this idea and he shows that he is God by reading their thoughts in his omniscience, his all-knowing. And he says this, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So he poses that question. The obvious easier thing would be to say that, you know, your sins are forgiven, not to do this miraculous thing in front of them. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. See, if Jesus has the authority to raise a man from the bed that he had lain on since the day of his birth, then he most certainly has the authority to remove the power of sin from my life and from your life. See, your inability, my inability to meet God's standards in our own power, our katar, our sin, missing the goal. See, that is our biggest problem. But this Jesus, being God himself, has the power to conquer that barrier of sin in our lives. Why? So we find the answer so eloquently put by Paul, the follower of Jesus, the apostle, in Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there if you have your Bible. If not, I'll read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in your own trespasses and sins. If you skip forward to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sin, in our Qatar or hamartia in the Greek, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. It, uh, it, by, by great, yeah, in, in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, as, not a result of works. This is not something that we do so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, <laughs> created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, as Paul says here, we were dead. We were helpless. Our sin had us spiritually dead. Like the paralyzed man in this story, What are we? We are completely helpless in our sin. There is nothing that we can do about it. But God, at the start of verse four there, it's a wonderful word, but in this context, but God, being rich in mercy toward us, gave us life, gave us salvation through his son, Jesus. He saves us from our biggest problem, our sin. And how is this done? In verse 13, just a few lines down in in, in, uh, this passage. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood 
of Christ, by the blood of Christ. See, Jesus tells this man and tells us as helpless as we both are in our spiritual condition, that the sacrifice of the cross has the power to wash you clean of not one sin, not two sins, not the third sin. And now you're thinking, how many times have I done this? I mean, come on, there's no chance for me. The blood of Christ has the power to cleanse you of all sin. Faith is involved here. Yes, the man had faith that Jesus could heal him of his paralysis. But that wasn't the power that healed him of his paralysis. Nor, more importantly, what forgave him of his sins. It was God being rich in mercy to him. And us, if you are his, the great love with which he loved us which caused him to condescend from heaven. That's not a bad way of condescending. It sounds like one way you're looking down on people. What it means in this context is that God left the throne room of heaven and became the God-man, the incarnate son of God, to become a man and live a life meeting that holy standard and then taking the punishment that we deserved on the cross. This is the gospel that Jesus was preaching in that crowded room. And it's the exact same gospel that we're hearing today, this afternoon. And my third question to you is this. Are you resting in the certain truth of your sins forgiven? If you are a Christian, do you have faith in the Son of God and his sure salvation if you are not a Christian? And he says this to the paralytic, verse 11. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So in application, just before we finish, um, that little bit there where it says, we never saw anything like this. See, the people in the crowded room, they gloried in the miracle of healing. They saw the miraculous work that Jesus did for this man in giving him his legs back. They see the miracle in the man and they see change. See, the man's legs and picking up his bed were the evidence of physical healing. They were the evidence that this man had gone from inability to walk to going about and walking. See, our souls, who we are, if we are Christians, should be evidence of our spiritual healing. You can imagine that the man walking out of Peter's house and the people of the village, they're marvelling. How, how is this possible? Look at the difference in this man. He couldn't walk. Now look at him. Who did this to you? And the man's reply, with a beaming smile on his face, it was Jesus, of course. It was Jesus, this man who has healed me. This God-man who has healed me. See, what does this look like in, in your life, Christian? What does this look like in your life? How can we walk in a way that makes people marvel at the great work of salvation and change that Jesus has done for us? See, the miracle of our salvation should be so evident in us that it should cry out to others. Look at Jesus. Look what he can do. Look what he's done for me. Your greatest problem of sin he can deal with too. So the man's legs, evidence of his physical healing, our souls should be evidence 
of spiritual healing. And the second piece of application before we close, by seeing our biggest problem dealt with, our sin and our distance from God removed through Christ, we must view all our other problems through the reality of the cross. We must view all of our other problems through the reality of the cross. So your greatest problem, if you are a believer, has been dealt with. His death and resurrection, that he is alive today, has given us life. Your greatest problem, and we should view all of our other problems through that lens, through the lens of our greatest problem being dealt with. See, this doesn't negate your problems at all. That's not what I'm saying. This doesn't negate my problems and your problems. Your suffering doesn't negate it at all. But through the financial struggles, through the health problems, through the relational issues, I would urge you, look to Jesus and his victory that he has won for us. Because that's exactly what he has won for us. He has won an ultimate victory if you are a believer in Jesus. By having that lens, viewing things through the victory of the cross, yes, it will still be a struggle on this side of glory. We will walk through life's sufferings with one who empathises, with one who knows what we are going through, with one who has been through suffering and understanding our trials. Let me end uh, this, this sermon with Isaiah chapter 53 as we go into communion. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, it says, um, speaking of Jesus, this was a prophetic word into the future from uh, the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah who would come, the one that the scribes and the Pharisees rejected, the one that we believe is our Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this, he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, that passage talks about Jesus being the one who went through the worst type of suffering, not just on the cross, the physical pain, but also the spiritual turmoil that he received in taking our sin upon himself. And we as Christians, we can know through life's problems, through the struggles, this man with his greatest problem, uh, well, his physical problem being his, his paralysis, Jesus healing that, but then giving him salvation, healing his biggest problem. We know that we have one who empathises. He's been through it all. He walks with us. He is with us through everything. So can I just end with a prayer um, as we move into communion? Um, but let's, let's be encouraged today that we have a saviour. Uh, if you are a Christian, we have a saviour who has dealt with our biggest problem our biggest problem of sin. And he walks with us because he's alive. And we're going, to celebrate, we're going to celebrate his death in a second. But he walks with us because he is alive in heaven today. And he walks with us through life's sufferings. And we will see him in glory one day. But let, let me pray. Let me close. And then we will move into communion. Um, let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your word. Uh, thank you for this passage where we, uh, many of us have heard this so many times, this story of this paralysed man, maybe at Sunday school, um, maybe we've read it multiple times, maybe we gloss over it sometimes, but I just pray uh, that even in the, um, this passage that we know so well, that we would, we would hear something new today, something that would encourage us, something that would uh, challenge us, move our spirits, uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray that we would 
love the Son of God uh, even more than we uh, did do before we, we came in uh, to this room. As we move into communion, I pray that you will prepare our hearts, Holy Spirit, as we think about, uh, think about your death, Jesus Christ, and what you did for us, that ultimate sacrifice uh, which would give us life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we move into communion, we will, uh, Matty's going to play us a song in a second and um, we'll, we'll approach the table uh, and we will receive the bread and the wine. Can I, can I invite uh, you, if you're a Christian, to, uh, to come and take this? This is a, uh, a, a solemn uh, thing, but also a joyful thing. We get to celebrate what Christ has done for us in removing the greatest barrier to having a relationship with him. Um, so I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians, a very famous passage, just to um, remind us of the importance of, of, this, uh, of the table. Uh, and then I will break the bread and, uh, and, and the wine and uh, we will move into communion. Matthew will play for, pray for, uh, will play for us. Uh, in, in, 1 uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 17, it says this, but in the, um, uh, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, uh, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, uh, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. And that is the great hope that we have, Christians, if you are a believer. Um, we have a saviour who will come again. Uh, but in the meantime, we remember him and we remember the great sacrifice that he, he, he did for us. That he loved us so much that he left the throne room of heaven uh, to become one of us and to empathise with us and to suffer with us, to die with us and then rise again and conquer death for us so that one day we will be with him. I'm going to pray. Matthew's going to play. And then, please, if you're a Christian, come forward. If you're not a Christian, please observe. We're so happy that you're with us. Um, but just please observe this. This is a, um, a special moment for those who believe in the Son of God as their saviour. If that's not you, as I say, we, we, we are so happy that you are with us. But please observe and, uh, and take in. Maybe to spend a moment just to think about what we have uh, looked at this afternoon. Let us pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this table. Thank you for the bread and the wine, which are symbols. They are emblems of what you have done for us. Uh, Lord, as we, um, as we receive this, uh, for those of us who are yours, remind us of our, our need for you, but also the great victory which you have done for us. Um, and I just pray that as we go into the rest of the week, uh, that you'll constantly remind us of this, that we are loved by you uh, so much that you gave your life for us, that you gave your body, you shed your blood uh, for us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.